0: Throughout the season of Lent, from now until Easter, I'm going to be preaching from the book of Jeremiah. The prophet calls the people to repent, and so it's a wonderful theme for our season together. But it's such a large book, just the Sundays of preaching from Jeremiah, certainly not enough. So on Wednesday nights at 645, there will be a Bible study on the book of Jeremiah. I hope you'll tune into that as well. But we begin this series and our Lenten season together listening to the words of Jeremiah in chapter 3, beginning in verse 25 and moving through chapter 4, verse 2. Let us lie down in our shame, And let our dishonor cover us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our ancestors, from our youth even to this day. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. If you return, O Israel, says the Lord, if you return to me, if you remove your abominations from my presence and do not waver... And if you swear, as the Lord lives, in truth, in justice, and in uprightness, then the nation shall be blessed by him, and by him they shall boast. I didn't watch the historic impeachment trials of former President Trump, Uh, I was at work when most of that was going on. But I did uh, watch the news, of course. Early mornings on the treadmill, I get caught up on the news. And I have a personal discipline of watching uh, news from two different news sources uh, with different bias so that I might not get caught up in that vortex of listening to one voice only. What struck me is as the commentators and those on both of these news outlets talked about the trial that was going on as it was going on, both sides accusing the other of having already made up their mind without hearing any argument or evidence. They accuse the other side of just listening for things that would support what they were already going to do. I heard one commentator say, "This is a this, this is a, a, a paraphrase." What they're listening for in the presentation is some ammunition to confirm how they're already going to vote. Well, there's nothing new about tribalism. For all of history, we've gathered in tribes people like us and defended ourselves against, well, people not like us. And one of the ever-present sins of tribalism is the notion that my tribe is right. My tribe is better. Your tribe presents a threat. I grew up thinking that everybody who didn't speak with a Southern drawl talked funny. Because it was my experience. My experience is normal. So, Baptist and Braves fan, white and Southern, Protestant work ethic, conservatism and bootstraps, real men and Southern gentlemen, these are my people, my tribe. Well, I know it's become a cliche to talk about how the, the many media sources allow us to kind of cloister off in a small room of people who think like us. And there is a sense in which the Internet has fueled this reality. But it's by no means a new reality. Throughout history, we've clung to our tribe and attacked the other. This is the backdrop. For our story today, Israel has a king. Israel does not have three branches of government, it does not have a two party system. They have a king. Nobody has to worry about re election. There's a king, and the job is to keep the king happy. Tell the king what the king wants to hear. There's not a cable channel dedicated to dissecting and Throwing rocks at everything the king says or does. There's no future in that, in a one party king system. Well, I mentioned that he doesn't have to worry about re election, but that does not mean at all that the king has a cushy job. Jehoiakim lived with immense pressure. Babylon to the north of King Jehoiakim and the Israelites. Babylon has imperial ambitions and they are aggressive, aggressive and they are trying to press into the land of the Israelites. The Egyptians to the south are desperate to keep uh, Israel as a, as a buffer, between, keep them safe from the aggressive Babylonians to the north. And as the grip of Babylonian pressure tightened, the Babylonians exiled one of the king's sons. The other son, Zedekiah, presided over Jerusalem in the midst of all of this unrest and turmoil and threat. There were temple priests whose job it was to tell the king about the will of God. Problem is the temple priests were on the payroll. The temple priests were paid by the rain. So, as you might imagine, when they're called on to talk to the king about royal matters and God's will, you can just imagine what kind of advice they gave. They gave advice that wouldn't displease the king. They they told the king not to worry. The God of Israel has made promises to the monarchy. God resides in Jerusalem, they told him. No threat from north or south is going to change that. God is on our side. Those people, those people who are not on our side, they're evil. We are the chosen ones. Remember, we're good. And it is inside this single-voiced echo chamber that Jeremiah raises a harsh, antithetical response. Jeremiah declares that the current adversity has been brought upon the Israelite people because they have betrayed the covenant. They've ignored God. They've turned their back on what is right and what is righteous. It's the sin of the chosen people that's caused this mess. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our ancestors from our youth even to this day and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. The season of Lent cuts across the lie that the world is a mess because of the evil of others. Lent calls all of us to lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. It is easy and lazy to yell and tweet our disappointment about the actions of others. I've I've come to love this quote by Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? the Israelites had constructed a narrative. We are the chosen ones of God, us good. The Babylonians are the aggressive evil threat, them bad. And the prophet, the prophet challenges the lies of the culture. Not by flipping the narrative, not by saying the Babylonians are good and the Israelites are bad. Only in B Westerns do you have white hats and black hats where there's people who are all good and all bad. No, we are all a part of the problem. It's our individual betrayal, our participation in corporate systems of oppression, our conscious sin, our unconscious bias, our betrayal of God's claim on our lives. It's all of that that makes us part of the problem. As Romans says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Lent is the 40-day season where we stare honestly into the mirror of our lives, looking for a true assessment to the reflection we see back. When we see scars of old wounds, we ask if those wounds contribute to the woundedness of others. When when we see sagging where there shouldn't be sagging, we ask, shouldn't my life demonstrate a more muscular faith in the provision of God? When we look back at the shade of our skin and we ask, how does that shade, how does it slant the way I view the world? How, how does my lack of spiritual discipline make me sluggish as a disciple? You see, it's, it's honest work in the mirror that leads to the kind of awareness that can move us to something else. Or as Jeremiah put it, let us lie down in our shame. Well, it's a fair question, I suppose, to ask why in the world we would want to do this, right? I mean, I I feel bad enough about myself already, Every billboard, every cultural message is telling me that I don't measure up, that I'm not enough. So, why in the world would I want to give 40 days to counting off all the rest of the ways that I've been a disappointment? My answer for that is that for all of redemptive history, this exercise has been answered in good news. You see, Jeremiah's not asking the Israelites to wallow, but to confess and repent on the other side of a sincere assessment and an honest confession and a determined new path. On the other side of that is always God's rich blessing. Jeremiah goes on to say this after calling the Israelites to their own shame. He says, if you return, O Israel, says the Lord, if you return to me, if you remove your abominations from my presence and do not waver, and and if you swear as the Lord lives, In in truth, in justice, and in uprightness, then the nation shall be blessed, blessed by him. And by him they shall boast. If you stop the selfishness, if you commit yourself to genuineness, justice, decency, If you do not waver, but truly assess and honestly turn back to living like God created you, it will lead to blessing. (laughs) Could you use some blessing? This is the good news we are guilty. But a loving God is pleading for our return because it ends in blessing. You might have thought that earlier I was uh, dealing in hyperbole when I mentioned that this theme has been at work throughout redemptive history. But there is an undeniable pattern in our holy book. Have you noticed a cross? From Genesis to Revelation, there is this pattern. In Genesis, Adam and Eve are told that the day they eat from the forbidden tree, they will die. That's the deal. Eat from this tree, you will die. But when they betray God's hopes, they're punished but not as severely as they deserved. God gives a sign of grace and a second chance. And then, Adam and Eve's children, not long after this first story, Adam and Eve have sons. They find themselves in conflict Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel, and Cain is punished, sent away, but not punished as severely. As he deserved, instead, God gives him a sign of his grace, a mark, a protective mark, and he gets another chance and then and then there 's this flood in Genesis, right? It destroys all the people except for Noah, his family, and a boat that smells like the county fair. And then at the end of that story, God declares no punishment like this will ever happen again. And God sweeps the sky with a rainbow, a sign of grace, and gives humanity another chance. I could go on through the Old Testament. But the theme stays alive in the New Testament as well. Right? You remember the story about a woman caught in adultery? The law is clear. The law is clear about the severity of the punishment she deserves. But it's Jesus who intervenes. Jesus is the one who intervenes, and she does not get the punishment she deserves. Instead, she gets another chance. Jesus tells the story of a prodigal son who, in essence, has said to his dad, you're dead to me. I want my inheritance now. I'm going to take it and go to Vegas. His guilt is clear. His punishment is a pigsty of his own doing. But the story ends with signs of grace. Or a ring, a fatted calf, a homecoming party. He gets another chance. You know, it would be a good exercise, wouldn't it, on one of these slow at-home quarantine days to just trace this theme all the way, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And I mentioned it's there in that early story of Genesis. And then at the very end of Revelation, the second to last chapter, John says of the holy city, its gates will never be shut. There is always a second chance. Well, the title of this sermon is Elevator Speech. I hadn't mentioned an elevator yet. So, maybe I ought to talk about it now. You know what an elevator speech is, right? I mean, like it, it, it comes from this idea that suppose you had a great idea, for instance, in your company about a product or a market or something. And you were on the elevator with the CEO of the company and wanted to pitch that idea just before the elevator gets to the parking garage. 30 seconds or so. Could you say it plainly, clearly, in a short, succinct way? Or or suppose you had a really complicated job like in information technology and had to explain it to somebody who has trouble working the remote control. Could you, in just short, clear, concise statement, explain what you do? So, In a lot of different contexts, people have been challenged to create an elevator speech, a a way of explaining, uh, no matter how complex, a way of explaining as succinctly and simply as possible. Well, here is my elevator speech on why we observe the 40 days of Lent before the celebration of Easter. God loves us enough to give us freedom, to let us go, to follow our own appetites, our narrow tribal instincts, our unrelenting selfishness, our insistence that other people are the problem. Our betrayal leads to punishment, most of it self-inflicted. And God loves us enough to never let us go. The gates will never be shut. God always gives signs of grace, arms wide open, beckoning us home. Honest self-examination, followed by confession and new discipline is always answered by God's forgiveness and blessing. God is giving us another chance. As we've already heard together in this time of worship, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is good news indeed. Thanks be to God. Thanks for joining us. If you live in the Atlanta area or visiting Atlanta, come and worship with us in person on Sundays at Second Ponstillian Baptist Church.